When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we hear from politician and writer Shashi Thurur about the rise of nationalism in India and around the world and his recent new book, The Battle for India's Soul. Here's Rana Mitter with more. I'm very excited to be hosting this Intelligence Squared Plus event with our guest tonight, Shoshi Tharoor. And Shoshi is extremely well known as one of the most prominent public intellectuals in India and indeed at a global level. He's a politician, he's a writer, he's a former diplomat, and he has been a member of the Indian Parliament for the Congress Party since 2009. He was formerly Under Secretary General of the United Nations and author of many, many books, both fiction and non-fiction. Uh, they include Why I'm a Hindu and the new title that we're going to discuss tonight, The Struggle for India's Soul. Let's get started. Shoshi, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Intelligence Squared event. Thanks to that and the magic of the pandemic era technology, which of course is something that we are both taking advantage of and in some ways have to regret. Let's hope we're moving out of that, stale, uh, that, that stage. A Indeed, very good to be with you. Thank you. Great to, be, great to have you here. A struggle for India's soul. So what defines India's soul, Shoshi, and why is there a struggle for it in the first place? Why is this an issue? It's an issue because in many ways what we're seeing in Indian politics today after 75 years of independence is a, a surprising conflict, uh, a conflict that I think many of us growing up in India in a certain time and indeed reading and writing and studying India would never have anticipated arising so late as it were into our political existence. Because, you know, Indian nationalism was something many of us took for granted. There was, of course, anti-colonial nationalism. In my case, it ended a decade before I was born. But the fact is, that was about getting the foreigners out of India. That was done. And that then evolved into what one would call a civic nationalism. Uh, because the nationalism that inspired our long struggle for independence had always been rooted in India's time-honored civilization traditions of inclusivity, social justice, religious tolerance, a desire to forge a society that allowed individuals to flourish irrespective of their religion, their caste, their language, their place of birth. 
And that was the nationalism we grew up with, and we saw no contradiction between celebrating our diversity and the variety of everything, of religions, of languages, of regions, of colors, and so on in our country, and at the same time proudly considering ourselves nationalists. Suddenly, this seemingly benign thought of nationalism, uh, which I suppose political scientists would call civic nationalism, has been challenged by a new dominant narrative that has won two elections in a row, and that challenges this basic idea of India, and which seems to thrive on an exclusionary, aggressive, sectarian spirit based on a sort of cultural identity, the idea that India is a Hindu Rashtra. So in this process, the soul of India, what is it that we celebrate when we call ourselves Indian? What do we feel when we announce our patriotism or our nationalism? This is in question, and the struggle is, are we going to speak of and, and, and show allegiance to an India which celebrates civic nationalism and diversity, or are we now expected to adhere to a, a notion of India, an idea of India, anchored in ethno-religious identity nationalism, uh, which denounces the rest of us as being anti-national for not subscribing to that point. That's the fundamental struggle that's going on for India. So. All right, Shoshi, thanks for that. Let's get to some of the specifics that you mentioned in your book, because I have to say it is a fascinating read, and I enjoyed it very much and would encourage others to, to take it up and read it. One of, the, one of the distinctions that you make in the book, not your own distinction, I know, one you cite from, from others who you, I have to say, probably don't, don't agree with, but nonetheless that is made, is between the word Bharat and the term India. Now, at a very literalistic level, of course, this doesn't seem to make sense because those who know Hindi or related languages will know that Bharat just means India. If you're speaking Hindi, that's that's what it is. And India is the old British name which has come to describe the country. And yet you argue that there is a distinction being made between these two and you don't like the distinction. Could you explain why that is? Right. Well, but as you said, Bharat, in fact, the Constitution says India, that is Bharat. So the two are even constitutionally synonymous, and every Indian language refers to India as Bharat, including my mother tongue, uh, Malayalam and yours, uh, I assume at some point, Bangla, and so on. I mean, every Indian language, not just Hindi, uh, uses the term Bharat. But having said that, what many have taken the two terms as shorthand for is for the Bharat representing something more timeless, primordial, authentic, rooted in the national soil, and India as somehow more deracinated, elitist, anglophone, and emerging uh, from a colonial construct. Uh, I'm troubled by that because it then translates into contemporary India as urban anglophone elitism in one and uh, rooted uh, Indian language speaking, particularly Hindi speaking, uh, far more sort of uh, uh, Hindu a notion of India in the other. And I just think that those binaries are unnecessary uh, and elide the fundamental way in which I believe India's soul embraces diversity and says that all of us belong to it in our own way. Uh, so anyway, that, that's, that's the distinction that you sought. It's not a distinction I welcome, but it is indeed often resorted to by analysts. Well, I want to probe a little while into some of the ways in which those divisions are becoming more evident in the India today and what they, they mean for the country's future. Let's just get a few specific examples. I suspect that many of those who've tuned in today either you know, know India well or uh, are interested in, in some sense, but just to get a bit of a picture, civil society 
is one of the areas where those observing India who have concerns about where things are going, where things seem to have in some ways closed off or become more constrained than they were previously, universities, the media, these are what people talk about when they're looking, as it were, from a previously more more liberal settlement to one that seems to have gone in a more monolithic direction. Could you give any examples of anything that you are worried about in, in those areas? Oh, my God, that's almost the, the entire book there, right? Well, I, we've already got an hour, so perhaps what, 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 I, are, two, I, what are two calling it? But I, I, I want to get something concrete, in other words, into people's minds of things that you think that are happening that are different from what would have happened before and that you think that the world should well, be well, I think, I think, so I think a recent example, uh, just before COVID, really, was the introduction of something called the Citizenship Amendment Act. Now, citizenship in India has never been linked to religion. The entire idea was that any, anybody born, anybody with any grandparent born in undivided India, as defined by the Government of India Act 1935 under the British, was eligible for citizenship. Now, some of this got narrowed in that those who had become uh, citizens of Pakistan or Bangladesh had to go through various uh, acid tests later uh, to see if they could qualify, but even they were eligible. Uh, nonetheless, religion was never mentioned, neither in the constitution nor in any law made about it. But for the first time, the government introduced a Citizenship Amendment Act to ostensibly to fast track citizenship applications by uh, refugees and migrants from our neighboring countries and specifically spelled out the religions that would be eligible for this fast tracking. They went from Hinduism, Christianity, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and conspicuously omitted Islam. Uh, And what was striking about this was, it was a way of saying to one particular community in India, you are here on sufferance, not by right. You are not in the same category as all these others. When pressed, I, I opposed this in Parliament, of course, and, and when pressed by me, the Home Minister took refuge in the argument that partition had taken place on religious grounds, and that therefore Muslims were excluded because countries had been created for them. But that is actually equally horrifying, because no Indian government before the present one would ever have accepted the logic of partition. The logic of partition rested on the presumption that religion is the determinant of nationhood. For India's Muslims in particular, that became the rallying cry, and so Pakistan was created as a country for Muslims. But everybody else, from Mahatma Gandhi to Jawaharlal Nehru to Sadat Patel to Dr. Ambedkar to, to a Muslim leader like Manana Azad and many others, said, this is wrong. Our freedom struggle has been for everybody. We will create a country for everybody. And religion does not determine our Indianness. That's been the the ruling credo. That's been the ethos. And I would argue that's been true to India's inclusive soul for very many years. And suddenly this act coming in, in effect, pointed a finger at one community and said, you're just not here on the same basis as everybody else. You don't belong in the same way. That's why the Indian edition of the book is called The Battle of Belonging, because that's, I think, what the message was. In any case, there's a concrete example. Um, it was made worse by the threat of the Home Minister to conduct a nationwide exercise in registering all citizens who would be obliged to provide documentary proof of their birth. And you could be reasonably sure that uh, the only ones whose inability to provide such documentation could have had severe consequences were Indian Muslims. So 
you had this enormous backlash with protests breaking out throughout the country, led by ordinary Muslims, for the most part not averring Islam, but rather their Indianness, and saying, you don't have the right to tell us we're not Indian. And a lot of us came out in support of these protests, which were ended only by the COVID outbreak and the resulting lockdowns. So an example there of how legislation is changing the secular nature of India in practice, if not necessarily at least in a ostensible statement. There have been many interviews here in, in Britain, for instance, with BJP ministers who have argued that this is something that can be justified under the Constitution. You talk about the Constitution quite a bit, I, uh, I know, but in practice it has had an effect of changing the way in which different communities relate to Indianness. But one of the things that people so far have still wanted to say is that India still has you know, at least one great advantage that many other countries which are turning towards a more authoritarian style of electoral government, you know, Philippines, United States in some ways, um, it has one advantage, which is the press. There are still liberal voices that can be heard in both English language and Indian language press and media across the country. I think of newspapers like the Calcutta Telegraph, which you know I know and have written for on, on, on occasion. There are plenty of others too. Could we be confident that the long-standing tradition of a lively and varied media in India will continue to keep government honest? We hope so, but the performance of the so-called mainstream media has not been encouraging in this regard. And I, I say this with a lot of regret. I, I'm a son of a newspaper man, and I myself somebody who's been writing for the Indian media since my childhood. And I, I would I would hate to see the media go under. But there's been an appalling level of conformity and even abject submission to the government on the part of the best-known mastheads in India. And, and what was appalling about that is, in fact, the contrasting courage of digital websites, which are really the last refuge now of people like me who want to, to, to say things bluntly and be read and heard, because everywhere else, I'm sorry to say, we're seeing, we're seeing uh, that the press has either been cajoled or cudgeled into conformity. Uh, we're seeing, by the way, an assault on pretty much all institutions, from universities to the, to the judiciary, to the uh, Independent Election Commission, uh, to the Reserve Bank of India. I mean, you, you name every institution and there has been an assault on it uh, by a government quite determined to, in, to ensure that criticisms and actions autonomous of the government's wishes uh, are restricted. But, but, but the press ought to be calling the government's actions to account. That's historically been the role of the press since the colonial era. Uh, and yet it's seemingly been cowed by the overweening power of the government, combining, I would say, intimidation and co-optation, uh, which has ensured that the minimum of critical voices exist in the mainstream media. You'll find the very occasional sort of op-ed by an individual, not necessarily associated with the editorial stance of the newspaper. And even those are few and far between in some of the newspapers. Uh, there are one or two honorable examples. And then, so the result of this is that the deinstitutionalization of Indian governance is happening because if the media isn't able to call the uh, spade a bloody shovel, then unfortunately uh, we, we, we are no longer uh, living in a full-fledged democracy. Well, let's use that term democracy to dig a little bit deeper into the thesis of the book, because just to prove that I have uh, read it with some care on page 297, Shoshi, you say, uh, and it's a great statement, Indian democracy is a strength, not a weakness. 
Okay, very happy to accept that. And it is notable that a country of that size and that diversity has managed to keep a cycle of uh, electoral um, democracy going for so many decades. But in that case, isn't the obvious argument that could come from the government or their, their many supporters, well, look, this is just democracy. Nobody forced anyone to vote for the BJP. They have a majority in government as uh, mandated by the Constitution of India. No different from Mr. Trump getting elected in America. People complained about him, but he was elected fair and square. He doesn't believe he was de-elected the second time. That's a slightly different, different question. But in this particular case, isn't what's happened now simply an example of Indian democracy adapting, but still remaining actually perfectly democratic? Yes and no, because in fact, uh, there have actually been external critics who referred to India as increasingly resembling an elected autocracy. Uh, I remember the late Jayaprakash Narayan, the famous socialist uh, rebel and activist, saying that Indian democracy should not consist of the sheep electing their shepherd every five years, who then essentially pushes them around as he sees fit. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that Indian democracy wasn't like that, but it's certainly worrying that it seems to be guided in that direction more and more by a government that seems to believe its democratic credentials rest only on an election victory and not on a need for accountability between elections. That's what's particularly worrying. I mean, you've, you've seen really many interesting arguments uh, around the world that the health of, uh, of liberal democracies globally is, is failing and that many consolidated democracies are eroding. You've seen this in Hungary, you've seen it in uh, in, 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 in a number of other countries, I don't want to be invidiously picking names. But in the case of India, what is worrying to me as an Indian Democrat, and of course as a member of the opposition, is precisely, Rana, that we are looking at a situation in which the exercise of a free vote is seen as the only sort of certificate of good housekeeping you need to claim to be a democracy and everything else that gives substance to the pillars of democracy, the, the institutions which are the enduring pillars of any true democracy, their independence, integrity, and professionalism, which ought to inure them from the political pressures of the day, are themselves being chopped off literally at the, at, at the knees. Uh, with the results. Yes, okay. so, so that, that's the answer. Okay, no, I would say, no, I mean, that, that, that's both uh, an, an inspiring and eloquent defense of Indian democracy. But again, just to push a little bit, you know, under the surface, I think it was actually Dr. Ambedkar who uh, very early on said that Indian democracy is very wide, but also in some ways quite, quite shallow. And I find myself thinking, actually, of course, about your own party in an earlier incarnation, back in 1975, when Mrs. Gandhi declared a state of emergency, which again, you talk about uh, to some extent in, in the book, just a reminder to those who, who don't remember or you know, are, are, are too young, for essentially two years, democracy was suspended in India in a way that actually outdoes what's happening now. You know, the press was actually prevented. It was censored and prevented from publishing uh, what, what, what it wanted to. Parliament was essentially suspended. J.P. Narayana, who you mentioned, was stuck in jail, along with an awful lot of other people on the left, including actually many of the people who became leaders of, of, of the BJP. The nearest India has come to dictatorship in the post-independence era was its two or three years under the secular leader, Mrs. Gandhi. Wasn't that a sign that actually Ambedkar was right, that democracy has always been quite shallow in India and that the peon that you've given has always had a slightly shallow basis no, to I think it. Ambedkar was talking about the social exclusion. What he was saying essentially is you've got undemocratic society which has practiced caste discrimination, particularly against the Dalit community, the so-called untouchables. 
And on top of that, you are actually imposing a democratic political structure. So you're one man, one vote, but you have one man, one value. I'm actually almost literally quoting his own words. That's what he meant. He, he wasn't, I think, challenging the kind of democratic institutionalization that I've been celebrating and seeking to defend. He was talking about our society, which of course is problematic. Mrs. Gandhi's emergency, of which I have been a fairly severe critic, uh, I wasn't in the Congress party at the time, I was a graduate student, but that apart. Uh, Mrs. Gandhi's emergency was an aberration. And to her credit, she then called a free and fair election and lost it and surrendered office, not something you see dictators doing. But she probably called it because she thought she would win it, which, of course, in this day of autocracy, she might do. My, my point being that if you say aberration, why isn't what we see now an aberration? Why won't things bounce back? Why isn't it for your party as the official opposition uh, elected to parliament to essentially make the case to say, look, we have something better that people will so, vote for? Very good point. I mean, first of all, we hope it's an aberration. We hope that the public will wake up to the travesties that are being conducted in their name by people who claim to have a mandate to make the mistakes they're making. Uh, you know, look at the economy, which has gone from a disastrous demonetization of 86% of India's currency by value, uh, right to the highest unemployment ever recorded since figures were recorded for employment. All of these catastrophes have laid India low at a time when we ought to have been booming before COVID. So uh, the Indian public surely uh, is going to wake up and say, why on earth would we vote for this government when we haven't got jobs, we haven't got a decent life, we were dying from COVID because there wasn't oxygen in the hospitals. What have these people done for us that deserve re-election? That's what we, we, we certainly want to bring about, and the opposition will campaign vigorously uh, to remind people of all this. But if they... The BJP still wins. Uh, and remember, in India, there's elections practically every six months because we have 29 states, each of which has its own polls. There are five states going to the ballot uh, in February. There'll be another two in November next year. So in, in a sense, there's a constant, constant electoral process in India. But if between those elections or despite those elections, the government manages to not be accountable for all sorts of excesses, from essentially suborning some of the independence of the institutions I've described, to creating, um, uh, for example, an opaque fund uh, for, for allegedly monitoring COVID and, and, and uh, other humanitarian charitable activities of the Prime Minister, which is not audited by the Control and Auditor General of India, and so on and so forth, example after example of, of new twists there's a creation of electoral bonds under which the wealthy people can finance political parties anonymously. But of course, there is a serial number on the bonds, so the State Bank of India knows who's bought the bonds, and therefore it's no great accident that 95 or 98% of those bonds have gone to the ruling party. So you've got one thing after another that didn't happen before, that wasn't part of Indian democracy, and that is increasingly twisting Indian democracy into something that it should not be. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Shashi, thanks very much indeed. Just a reminder that uh, I'm Rana Mitra. I'm in conversation with Shoshi Tharoor, uh, the major Indian Indian public intellectual and politician whose new book, The Struggle for India's Soul, is out now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Mahatma Gandhi. We talked about Indira Gandhi and the unrelated but also very important Mahatma Gandhi, I think, should come into our conversation. I think you probably, like me, have read uh, the great historian Ram Guha's uh, wonderful two volumes of uh, deeply researched um, uh, work on Gandhi's life published in the last few years. And yet, of course, Gandhi himself has become a somewhat controversial figure in India today in a way that actually the leading figures of the government have made slightly ambivalent because they haven't rejected him, but they have tried to appropriate him, if that's the right word, for the current Hindutva BJP nationalist message, which you might think was a rather difficult sort of thing to do. And you write about this rather interesting phenomenon in in the book. What what do you make of it? Well, I must say that I I, I find it incredible because I know something about the RSS, the Rashtra Science, that's why I'm saying I've sung the movement from which Mr. Modi and indeed the bulk of the, uh, the ruling party establishment uh, have graduated, as it were. They've all been through the RSS. Many are still officially serving members of it. The RSS has historically preached against Mahatma Gandhi. They had contempt for him when he was alive. Many RSS chapters or shakhas distributed sweets to celebrate his assassination when he was killed. They had contempt for his faith in nonviolence. A famous comment by then head of the RSS that every Hindu god carries weapons and that Gandhi's uh, uh, himself was completely un-Hindu, and and so on and so forth. They certainly had a great deal uh, of of withering hostility uh, towards Gandhi for his desire to overcome Hindu-Muslim differences, even during the hatreds unleashed by partition. And the fact that he, his last fast was actually to get the government of India to give a more generous share of the exchequer to the newly created state of Pakistan, uh, all of this created a tremendous, tremendous amount of hostility to Mahatma Gandhi, which everybody growing, in, growing, growing up in the RSS has imbibed. Now, Mr. Modi comes to power and realizes that, uh, that there's more to, um, uh, to, to sort of winning friends and influencing people around the world than spouting Hindu nationalism, that you need to have a, a brand image. He managed to sort of be the kind of prime minister who had a, a threshold, the Shiva strident in one hand, and and showed himself clicking a mouse with the other, as it were, this technocratically friendly modern leader whom the West would would embrace. And for him, it was very rapidly clear that disowning Mahatma Gandhi was a bad idea, that he would actually gain from Mahatma Gandhi's global luster if he appropriated him instead. But he wasn't particularly welcoming of the content to what Mahatma Gandhi preached. And so what the BJP did was to appropriate Mahatma Gandhi as a symbol of their sanitation movement. The Swachh Bharat or Clean India campaign uh, has adopted Mahatma Gandhi's glasses as their logo because Mahatma Gandhi famously said that sanitation is more important than independence, and they've decided that sanitation is going to be the issue for which Gandhi will be the, the mascot. 
nothing about nonviolence, nothing about truth, nothing about Hindu-Muslim unity or amity, nothing about any of the causes for which he fought and lived and died, Mahatma Gandhi got reduced to a figure emblematic of sanitation. Now they're taking him one step further and resurrecting what they say is Mahatma Gandhi's faith in Hinduism. Uh, uh, he was indeed a very devout Hindu, absolutely no doubt about that. But he interpreted his Hinduism as one that was inclusive, that was accepting of difference, that had imbibed uh, philosophies from, from other faiths, including Buddhism and Christianity and Jainism. And therefore, his Hinduism was very far removed from the so-called muscular and rather aggressive Hinduism of the of today's ruling BJP and San Parivar. So it's quite paradoxical, this appropriation of Mahatma Gandhi, but it shows, I suppose, that you can you can pretty much pick and choose anything you like out of anybody and drag him onto your side if you if you really want to uh, debate cynically. Well, it has to be said that Gandhi has become an extraordinarily diverse, diversely interpreted figure in the last few years. Everyone from various people arguing that his early animus against Africans in particular means that his entire body of thought should be dis discounted, which takes to one end. A Marxist critique, which argues that he was never actually uh, the kind of liberator he claimed. And now this sort of semi-appropriation under Hindutva, none of which might have been necessarily interpretations that he would have recognized um, himself. But of course, we uh, will not know. But I would recommend everyone to read Ram Guha's fantastic two-volume biography of him, which uh, is immensely uh, revealing. Let me pick up one thread of what you said in that, uh, that answer, Shoshi, about the international influence of Gandhi in terms of shaping India's image. Because I'm speaking to you today from Britain, which I should say, of course, is your place of, of birth. Uh, in fact, you returned to India having uh, been born there. And by the way, there's a wonderful uh, story at the beginning of your book about trying to shake off the necessity to get a British passport by default, uh, which you were entitled to, but never, uh, never took up. In an era where many people are trying to gain citizenship, the idea of not picking it up and deliberately losing it was, was rather interesting in some, some ways. Um, but let's speak for a moment about Britain. Britain right now, particularly post-Brexit, defining itself as global Britain, is really spending a lot of time, at least in governmental circles, thinking about India. It sees it as a new trade partner. I mean, whether Mr. Modi sees it the same way is another matter, but, you know, it's un under discussion. It sees it as a new security partner, part of what it calls the D10, the group of 10 democracies, the G7 plus South Korea, Japan, India. Part of the Quad, of course, this new military um, uh, pact, not quite an alliance, but a pact anyway, between Japan, Australia and the United States, along with India. In other words, the rest of the world is looking at Mr. Modi's India, and unlike you, it's saying, well, actually, we can live with this. This is something that actually suits our needs quite well, and we're quite happy to turn these guys a democratic partner with whom we can do business. Are they right? I, I don't think they're entirely saying that right. I mean, there's a lot uh, of what you, what you said is accurate. They reflect an accurate understanding of India's geostrategic importance, particularly in light of the rather belligerent rise of the country you know so well, China. But when you think in terms of what makes India an attractive member of all of these partnerships, it is the fact that it is a democracy. And if it weren't, it would actually lose its most fundamental credential for being part of these groups. You can't be in the D10 if you're not really a D, and you can't really be in the kinds of... Uh, uh, shall we say, resistance to Chinese expansionism brigade if you are yourself exhibiting the worst qualities that the Chinese have been exhibiting to their minorities, the Uyghurs, and so on. Now, in the case of India, we are certainly far, far, far away 
from being as bad as, as uh, the Chinese when it comes to me. The Chinese are treated the Uyghurs or the Tibetans or others. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not making the mistake of suggesting there is nothing to choose between the two. But I am saying that there are increasing concerns and even alarm bells being raised about the fact that India's, Indian, the Indian government's domestic behavior is not up to the standards that the world has long come to expect of India. That when, for example, Muslims are routinely demonized by people in positions of authority, when shameful incidents occur, for example, of lynchings, of, of Muslims being beaten and asked to sing the praises of Jayashri Ram, even as they're dying, uh, I mean, you have these, these horrendous incidents happening which never seem to get condemned by those who are in power, then other countries sit up and notice. And they're certainly amongst the India's friends in the Islamic world who are noticing and are expressing their concerns. Bangladesh is a very important neighbor for us, one of the few that are genuinely friendly and you can't afford to antagonize them. But you are doing so with some of the stories Bangladeshis are reading about what's going on in India. Uh, the Kuwait National Assembly recently passed a hostile critical resolution about India's mistreatment of its Muslims. In the Gulf countries where Indians are actually uh, finding themselves a home, a job, and a source of remittances, can you afford to antagonize all of these countries? And then when it comes to the Western world, it was no real accident that Mr. Modi shows up in America and Vice President Kamala Harris, instead of merely celebrating her ethnic affinity to the visiting prime minister, because she is of Indian origin, her mother was Indian, uh, instead lectures him on the importance of democracy. But I think the messages are fairly clear. Uh, everyone values India, recognizes India's extremely special place in the world, wants to be able to welcome and embrace India, and is begging India, for God's sake, don't make it difficult for us to do so, by your own behavior, conduct, and statements at home. And I think that's actually a pretty reasonable proposition uh, that Indian officials ought to pay attention to. Thanks, Shashi. I see that questions are pouring in, so I'm going to put one last one just to round off this part of the discussion for a brief question, brief answer. And um, it is essentially about where we go next. Now, the way I have seen this is something that has a half glass full or half glass empty interpretation, which is that as actually in previous um, eras of, of Congress dominance, a lot of the pushback against central government politics in India comes from the East and from the South, your own Southern homelands, Karnataka, Kerala, Tamil Nadu, and of course, West Bengal. And you could look at West Bengal, which recently f did not let the BJP actually win government in that uh, state. Uh, the ruling Trinamool Congress, separate from the Congress party, uh, won again. But there was a significant advance in BJP voting there. So for those like you who want to push back, do those parts of India that haven't yet become dominated by the BJP merely provide a kind of sign of, of things to come? Or are they actually the anvil for something that might be a different sort of politics later on? Well, I've no doubt in my own mind that, in fact, the parts of the, of the country where, which have so far remained immune to the BJP's advances are actually the parts of the country that will continue to resist the BJP, which is increasingly being seen and being reduced to being in the heartland party. Uh, in fact, it has only one state in the South, Karnataka, and every indication is it is not going to be able to hold on to it beyond this one term. It is attempting to spread in the Northeast, but frankly, facing many contradictions over the fact that it is 
often rely on local partners uh, who, who don't share any But it increased its seats in Bengal last time. It increased its seats in Bengal, true, but it has also failed to pull off the victory that it thought its efforts and its colossal expenditure would have justified. And strikingly, a number of the opportunists who had jumped ship from the ruling party, the Trinamool, to join the BJP for the elections have quietly turned tail and come back after the elections, including some who won their seats under the BJP and are now regretting having joined that party. So I think I think it is a Hindi heartland party what's particularly worrying Rana, and I mentioned this in a later part of the book, is the fact that we have an unusual arrangement whereby the political constituencies in the lower house of parliament have been delimited in accordance with the proportions of the 1971 census in an arrangement through a constitutional amendment that will lapse in 2026. All indications are that the BJP will not want to renew that amendment and will instead want to stack the deck to reflect the changes in population over the last five decades, which have dramatically increased the population of those states that have failed to empower their women and, and curb uh, population growth. And those are precisely the Hindi heartland states where the BJP thrives. And you may suddenly you may suddenly find a situation where the South, Bengal, the, these states that, that are resisting the BJP are in effect disenfranchised uh, in parliament because uh, the Hindi heartland suddenly, as a result of sheer demographics, gets a two-thirds majority in the House. And that's a very worrying thing that I've flagged in the book, which we have to watch out for in the next few years. Uh, Aside that there are many, many aspects of Indian politics that we'll have to keep a close eye on in the next few years. I want to break in there just because it's time for us to get our huge audience from around the world to take part in this conversation as well. I know they're dying to get in, Shoshi. Right, let's get to some of these questions, Shoshi, because a lot of things that people want to ask you. Uh, We've got a general message from William Mora, who's saying, greetings from Venezuela, just to prove we genuinely are very global uh, today. Um, And here's a question, I think, from, well, a friend of both of ours, I have to say. Gosh, I'm going to cheat and put him in first here. Uh, Dom Ziegler from The Economist magazine, who we have to have because he's currently sitting in Uzbekistan, in Tashkent. And he is asking on the question of institutions, Shoshi, would your criticism of the press also apply to the Supreme Court? And just as in the US, for those who don't know, the, the, the makeup of the Indian Supreme Court has become quite a politically controversial issue in India recently. So Shoshi, over to well, you. I'm sorry to say that it, 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 it now does a little bit. I mean, the, the one difference in the US Supreme Court is that in the US Supreme Court, you're appointed for life. And in, in the Indian Supreme Court, you have to retire when you hit a particular age, I think it's 65. And therefore, if judges are particularly either craven or independent, time will take care of them, as it were, eventually. Uh, but there have been a number of, of criticisms that the performance of the last few chief justices has reduced what used to be a fiercely independent apex court to an executive court, subserving the government's agenda. And and I'm not saying this, legal luminaries have written articles and learned essays making this argument. Uh, and, and the problem here is that if you have a Supreme Court that seems ever ready to oblige the government, uh, in a slew of cases, I might add, and then the chief justice of that court, upon retirement, accepts a nominated seat in the upper house from the same government he has obliged in his judgments, without even a cooling off period in between, then you really do worry about whether the institution has become one that not just serves the interests of the executive, but speaks its language. Uh, and this is something you can't afford to have 
a Supreme Court that's indistinguishable from the executive. The current uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice has been getting a good press, and we all hope it lasts. Uh, though there are some cases before him that I think everyone um, is is anxious to see, you know, courageous responses to by the court. Uh, but frankly, it's it's the judiciary and the media, the two institutions you've asked about, Rana, that for many of us represent the only hope other than electoral victory for the opposition, which of course is many years away. These are the institutions that absolutely need to stay alive and keep the flame of Indian democracy alive. Well, there's several questions that are coming. I'm going to kind of put them together, if I may, because they make up a sort of suite of questions on a similar area about the possibility of the government changing. And obviously, as an opposition politician, at one level, you're literally parti pris, but also you're at the centre of the uh, of the fight. So let me put these uh, here. Anonymous attendee says, is there a realistic possibility that the BJP will be voted out of power at the centre of the next general election? Uh, I don't think this is Mr. Modi secretly writing to us, because it then says, given the economic underperformance and divisive nature of the agenda, but then, says, the Hindutva doctrine seems to catch the masses, given the shambolic nature of the opposition. And then before you come back and tell us why that, I'm sure that's not right. Martin Yule from Manchester says, what hope does Congress offer people in rural India that the BJP does not? And then the final one that sort of comes under this heading, Robert G.H. from North London says, has not Indian democracy under the Congress party and others failed? Witness the continuing profound and widespread poverty. If so... Is not radical change needed? Hmm. All right. So uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, let me just get on, get on to the rural one right away by saying that the Congress Party is the party that actually introduced the Rural National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, uh, which was opposed, attacked, and derided by Mr. Modi when he became Prime Minister in a famous speech saying that we will preserve this scheme as a monument to all the decades of your failure. Uh, in the end, he ended up relying on the scheme to bail him out when he was unable to improve the economy and generate any jobs. It was the Congress-created scheme that guarantees 100 days paid deployment to at least one member of every rural family below the poverty line that actually won the day and that has kept people from, from living hand to mouth, number one. Number two, in rural India, every one of Mr. Modi's welfare schemes has been lifted lock, stock and barrel from the Congress. So the BJP isn't doing something the Congress wouldn't do. And number three, the thing about the Congress party in rural India is that it has always showed, some would say, an excessive respect for uh, India's agricultural community, the farmers in particular, landless labor, no taxation on agriculture, for example, which uh, is, is, is an interesting challenge, and, and uh, purchasing by government-owned corporations of crops at a minimum support price. The BJP, by passing three uh, farm laws that essentially privatize uh, the purchase and distribution of agriculture, has, in the views of many, in the view of many farmers, placed rural incomes at the mercy of urban capitalists. And so uh, they're up in arms against the BJP. The entire uh, farming belt across northern India uh, is is hostile to it. So on the question of what does the BJP offer rural India not very much by comparison with what the opposition stands for. The Congress Party has also come up with a scheme called Nyai, which is about a guaranteed minimum income to every poor Indian, something like 20% to India's families. It is a, a very major giveaway, uh, and I'm sure some economists would consider it irresponsible and so on, but the truth is that that's something that the Congress victory would bring 
that the BJP will not be able to match. On the related question of uh, radical change, well, if you're a Democrat, you get radical change for the ballot box. If the questioner implied uh, you know, any sympathy for the Maoists or the Naxalites who foolishly taken up the gun in some of our uh, rural areas, uh, in, in a rather futile uh, but deeply destructive efforts to bring about that kind of radical change, I'm afraid I have no sympathy for that. Uh, I think that ultimately ours is a country where change is best brought about through preservation and electoral victories. And that brings me back to the original, uh, the first question you asked of the three, which is, of course, the toughest one to answer. Is there any realistic prospect of the opposition on seating the BJP? I'd like to think there is, simply because the BJP's failures are so self-evident that it's difficult to pretend they aren't there. I mean, uh, on the economy, I mentioned already demonetization, unemployment, uh, uh, every kind of economic collapse you can imagine has been visited upon us. Uh, it, on, on, the, on the social fabric, you have seen the rending, uh, the, the rending of the social fabric with, with a terrible uh, level of divisiveness and particularly an insecurity for minorities. That is deeply, deeply worrying those of us in India who do not judge people by how they raise their hands in worship, but rather by uh, the content of their uh, character to borrow from Martin Luther King. And that, unfortunately, uh, is another part of the BJP's gift to India. And so I think that most people um, have already endured all of that. And then the last straw in many parts of India was the mismanagement of COVID, where poor families were even literally floating the corpses of their loved ones down the river Ganges because they couldn't afford to pay for cremations. And indeed, the backlog for cremations in any case was so long, it was unsustainable for many. Now, that's the kind of situation that the government's mismanagement of the economy uh, and of, of COVID has brought about. And on top of that, it has looked particularly feckless and inept on the border as China has nibbled away at the, at the, at the northern frontier. So with all of this going on, why on earth the BJP would get re-elected? It's difficult to explain. The usual defense is the TINA factor. There is no alternative. I think it's incumbent upon the opposition to demonstrate convincingly and clearly that there is an alternative, and it consists of decent people, experienced people, who actually believe in inclusive governance. Shoshi, uh, in the recent past, your name has been mooted as a potential prime ministerial candidate for the Congress party. Is that something of interest at all? Oh, I mean, there's no politician who says it's not of interest, but it's it's not realistic. It's a good deal less realistic than turfing the BJP out of office. <laughs> the party I believe if, uh, I, mean, I, I belong to has a settled leadership. I do believe, however, that there should be an opposition coalition. There should be unity across the opposition because people often forget when celebrating Mr. Modi's electoral mandate, that he won the first time with 31% of the vote and the second with 37% of the vote in a first-past-the-post system in which the vast majority of Indian voters rejected him, but their votes were fragmented across 45 uh, regional, local, and other national parties. So if we can construct a sensible national opposition coalition, I genuinely believe uh, we, can, we can defeat Mr. Modi. And at that point, who... Uh, heads or chairs, it is something that the victors would have to decide. Right now, I think what's at stake is really India's soul. 
And that's what I want to fight for. Well, let me bring in uh, get a couple of questions on a similar issue, which uh, I think get to an important area that we've only just touched on briefly. So chance to have a quick answer on, on this. Uh, one comes from the distinguished writer on India, Victoria Schofield, who says, greetings from London. And she says, um, we all know the history of fractious Indo-Pakistani relations. Do you think the current Indian government is making more than the usual hostility to gain popularity amongst the BJP constituents in India? And another one that comes from anonymous at ND, and I don't know why she or he is being anonymous because they start brilliant presentation. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, maybe that's why. Can you comment on Prime Minister Modi's use of the traditional hostility which exists with Pakistan to gain domestic support. So a couple of questions there on the relationship with Pakistan. And I just add, and you'll remember this, Shoshi, right at the beginning of his first term, Mr. Modi actually made some outreach to Pakistan, which was rather unusual and made people think that maybe he was going to be a sort of Nixon to China type person who would be able to actually mend the relationship. That doesn't seem to be where it's gone in, in recent years. Right. Well, there's a lot to be said on that. I think in all fairness to Mr. Modi, he did somewhat whimsically and impulsively surprise the nation by dropping in in an unannounced, unplanned visit to Nawaz Sharif in in um, in Lahore, I think it was, uh, and quite quite unexpectedly because he was on his way back from Kabul to Delhi. He called Nawaz Sharif on a courtesy call to wish him a happy birthday. Nawaz said, why don't you pop by and celebrate it with me? And my granddaughter is getting married the same day. We're welcome at the wedding. And Modi said, why not? And then popped over and, and then... Uh, after that sort of feel-good experience, followed up by when there was a bomb attack and a rather nasty terrorist attack on an Indian Air Force base in a base called Patankot, he then actually invited Pakistani intelligence to inspect the site for itself, to satisfy itself uh, of the information that India had provided, because the Pakistanis used to have a habit of denying every terrorist attack emanating from their soil, even though it's pretty obvious where most of these attacks are, are actually mounted from. Uh, so to Mr. Modi's credit, he made those two gestures, which were um, undoubtedly uh, rebuffed by Pakistan, and that the, the visit to Mr. Uh, Nawaz Sharif in, uh, on the 25th of December was followed by an attack in the middle of January on Patankot and subsequent other terrorist raids that were seen as having emanated from Pakistan. And you can't entirely blame Mr. Modi from having uh, turned cold, shall we say, and abandoning any peaceful overtures to Pakistan. Then after, however, what is striking is that there was this rather ill-timed from the point of view of the Indian opposition, but also tragic from the point of view of any patriotic Indian attack on an army convoy in Kashmir just before the 2019 general elections, which killed 40 of our soldiers. And that gave Mr. Modi a chance to uh, conduct a bombing raid across the border, what he described as a terrorist training camp, uh, and then uh, essentially run to electoral victory by thumping his chest and saying, I'm the guy who can deal with Pakistan in its own terms. So that, uh, in many ways, may have actually pulled off a win uh, that didn't look so likely before that terrorist attack, uh, because he had really already created the disaster of demonetization. Unemployment was already rife. Uh, and there were economic setbacks that could have led people to say, uh, you know, we want to change again. But this particular thing clinched an election for him. And the BJP then realized that they, this is a very good issue for them to hold on to. So all of those who are asking whether he is deliberately stoking tensions in Pakistan, uh, I would say that the initial uh, error was not his. Indeed, one can even go back further to his own inauguration in 2014, to which he 
invited all the prime ministers of the neighborhood, including the Pakistani, and treated them very well. So he, he did start off wanting to make peace on the subcontinent. But uh, subsequently, uh, they have seen the electoral advantages of soaking a certain level of belligerent rhetoric uh, towards, the, uh, towards Pakistan in particular, which serves a twin purpose of uh, demonizing an enemy and discrediting India's Muslims by association. So in many ways, it's fed into a certain narrative of the government. I'm just jumping in, Shoshi, because time is beginning to creep upon us, but there's a couple more questions I definitely want to get in for quick questions or quick answers. One is actually just to also answer a point that someone made in the chat. The books that were mentioned about Gandhi are the two volumes by Ramachandra Guha, G-U-H-A, available through, I think, Penguin Books in India and elsewhere. So if you haven't read those, buy Shoshi's book, but also please do buy those. They're both excellent. A question that comes in from Catherine in India, in fact, basic, very good question, but based on, boiled down, she asks it in a more polite way that I'm going to do. A lot of people said that in the 2019 election, one point of difference was that the Congress Party's social media effort amongst the electorate was dire. And the BJP, whatever you say about them, their Hindi language social media engagement, particularly with women voters, was absolutely superb. Fair indictment? Not fair indictment. I think in 2014, it it is a fair indictment. The Congress Party was simply not there. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say that until July 2013, I was India's most followed politician on Twitter. So, I mean, I actually had uh, uh, stuck my neck out, but the rest of my party had refused to follow the BJP, particularly Mr. Momi, who was a man who overtook me in July 2013, um, uh, rapidly realized that this was an extremely useful tool for them, uh, because at that point, they were the ones who felt the mainstream media were biased against them, and they actually found uh, an opportunity to use social media to, to, to turn the tables, as it were, on the mainstream received opinion. Uh, having said that, I'm not sure it's still true anymore, and I would argue that even though social media is uh, certainly liable to misuse, uh, to publishing extremist points of view, to airing bigotry, and so on, I would say that now social media is a platform on which, by and large, the Hindutva ecosystem around the BJP gets as good as it gives. I think that there is now also there are strong uh, liberal voices that are that are resisting some of it. So. I would not say that it's a completely uneven playing field on social media. Where the BJP is very good is on things like organizing WhatsApp groups. Uh, Their version of history gets out in mediums and ordinary people's phones and on devices and on apps like WhatsApp, which have completely... I think we, we haven't been able to match that, the resources. No, that's true. And there's me recommending Penguin Books, which maybe is not the way of the, the future. <laughs> one last question to get in here. It, it, it's a big one, but I'm going to ask you to uh, give it your, your best shot in the most con- concise way as we come up to time. But I think it is important. One thing that a lot of outside observers would say about India today in terms of its international relationships is that in terms of two really important international engagements with the United States, particularly under both Trump and Biden, And with China, the current Indian government has taken stances that many people outside broadly think seem to make sense, you know, warmth towards the United States in a way that was less true in the Cold War um, and a certain amount of toughness towards China on border issues. Is there anything that you, you know, either as you or as a Congress member would change in terms of India's current stance towards those two immensely important or they're rather different relationships, U.S. and China. Foreign policy has always largely been a consensual subject in India in the sense that we have tended, uh, by and large, to let our political differences uh, sort of fade away at the water's edge. 
uh, in the, India's relations with the U.S. actually been uh, bipartisan on both ends. That is, in America, it didn't matter which party came to power or won the White House. Uh, in India, it didn't matter which party came to power. We, we tended to work uh, in the same direction towards strengthening Indo-U.S. relations. China, there has been a difference, and it's more a difference, I think, of of competence than of, of substance. India's, uh, both governments, the, the Congress government of the previous 10 years and the Modi government of the last seven, taken the view that we can't afford to be part of a sort of containment strategy against China or to ally ourselves in overt hostility to China uh, because we need them not least for trade. Uh, they are one of our largest uh, trade partners. I think we are forced to cross $100 billion in trade this year already, and we're only in October. So China is important, plus it's a next-door neighbor. We'll have to live with them whether we like it or not. Uh, it's not a country far away that we can afford to have a Cold War with and so on. So there's been that. At the same time, we're very conscious that China has been nibbling away at our frontiers in the north, that China sees us in a much less friendly light than we see, that we would like them to see us, let's put it that way, and that some of our uh, nostalgic sentimentalism about traditional millennial ties with China are not particularly shared or appreciated on the other side. So given all of that, uh, India has, has been navigating a slightly complicated set of attitudes. The Modi government has really had a couple of major diplomatic setbacks on the frontier and Bhutan, the Doklam frontier, and now most recently last year, the Galwan Valley, and the humiliation of 20 Indian soldiers being killed by the Chinese and, and the prime minister lying to the Indian public and saying that no Indian posts have been occupied. All of that has been truly shocking and and dismay, but we stay united on the fundamental questions of national interests. So I won't go beyond that, except to say that uh, we just hope that if we were handling these policies rather than the present government, we might show a little more experience and competence and bring them into service on these matters. Concisely put and beautifully timed, Shoshi. Thank you for that. And we're coming towards the end. I'd like to thank our speaker, Shoshi Tharoor, and remind you again that his new book is The Struggle for India's Soul. Unless you're in India, where it has a different title, you're the saying, Shoshi, if you're in India, as some of our... The Battle for Belonging. There you are. So you can even buy it twice for two different uh, titles. Thank you, our audience from around the world, whether you're in Venezuela, Tashkent, India, or North London. Who knows which is the most remote of, of any of those, depending where you, where you start, I suppose. Great to have you with us. And many thanks to Intelligence Square for organizing this. Uh, thank you, Rana, for your very able conducting of this somewhat unruly conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organization, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.